Our God in heaven, our creator, ruler, sustainer, and redeemer, you are worthy to be praised, great God of wonders, for all your perfections and all your works. You are the all-sufficient and sovereign Lord, ruling over all things. History is but the unfolding of your eternal plan. In love and compassion, you stoop to meet with us, lifting us up into your heavenly presence. O oh, great God, we humble ourselves that you might exalt us. We cry out to you that you might give us your grace. Give us your gifts this day, gifts of life, wisdom, and glory. Through our songs and prayers, through the word as it's read and preached, may you work in us and through us. Oh God, we thank you for creating us in your image. We thank you for creating us male and female. We thank you for the beauty and the glory and the wisdom and the wonder of all that you have made. And Father, though we have turned against you and gone our own way in our sinfulness, we thank you for preserving us in your love and power. And we thank you for redeeming us through your eternal son, the word made flesh, who came and suffered and died for us on the cross. And so gracious Lord, we give you thanks and praise for redeeming us, for forgiving our sins, for accepting us as righteous in your sight, for granting us new life by the work of your Holy Spirit. Now, O oh Lord, hear our cry as we give you thanks and praise all to the glory of your marvelous grace. O Father eternal, through your eternal Son, crucified and resurrected for us, and by the power of your eternal Holy Spirit, have mercy on us, have mercy on us, have mercy on us. O God, may your loving kindness be upon us. May your blessings rain down upon us. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sermon text this morning is taken from Revelation chapter 16, beginning in verse 17. This is the account of the seventh bowl. And the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came upon the earth so great an earthquake as was and so mighty. And the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God, because of the plague of hail, because the plague was extremely severe. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for this word to us in the book of Revelation. We pray that you would give us eyes to see what you're revealing to us and what we're called to do as the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. The book of Revelation is a worship service. One of the things that's happening in the book of Revelation, one of the things that's unveiled in the Revelation, in the apocalypse, the unveiling, 
is what happens when God's people gather together in his presence for worship. Early on in the book, John is summoned by a voice from heaven and ascends in the spirit into the heavens. And there he witnesses an ongoing worship service involving the angels, four living creatures, uh, the hosts of elders who are sitting on thrones, the rest of the angels who are standing around the throne of the Lord and worshiping. As he's watching, the lamb takes a book and he opens the seals of the book so the book's contents can be announced and read out. Seven angels trumpet out that the word is going to be read and then John takes the book and eats it and then speaks the word that he's chewed on and swallowed. He speaks the word of the Lord. It's a liturgy of the word. Every week, Pastor Lusk takes a page of his Bible and chews on it all week. It's sweet to his mouth. Sometimes it's bitter in his stomach. And when he comes to this pulpit on Sunday, he's ready to speak the words of the Lord that he's eaten. It's a liturgy of the word. Eventually, John is going to hear an announcement and an invitation to join in the marriage supper of the Lamb. The book begins with an ascent into God's presence with a sursum corda, lift up your hearts, and John is lifted up to heaven. There's a liturgy of the word, and then the book climaxes with an eternal marriage feast. In chapter 16, we're entering the sacramental portion of the book of Revelation. Angels have seven bowls full of wine, full of what is called the wine of the wrath of God, and they're ready to pour them out. Seven angels pouring out seven bowls of wine, which is also described as blood. It's like a great day of atonement as the Lord is bringing his judgments and his plagues to bear on the world and to tear the world down. The bowls are poured out on the different zones of the creation. Every part of the creation that God established at the beginning receives a bowl of this wine wrath, a bowl of this blood wrath. The bowl is poured out on the earth. The bowl is poured out on the sea, on the rivers, on the sun. A bowl is poured out on the Euphrates River and it divides. A bowl is poured out finally on the air. And as the bowls are poured out, all the things that God had established in the creation are torn apart. It's a decreation story. It's uncreation rather than creation. The Lord is shredding the creation and he's shredding it in the same order, roughly, as he established it in the original act of creation in Genesis 1. You can follow the the bowls, and they match up pretty well with the days of creation. On day two, God established the sea, and the second bowl goes, goes on the sea and turns it to blood. Day three, God separated the sea and the land, and part of the establishment of the land was the formation of rivers and other water sources in the land. The third bowl poured out, goes onto the rivers and makes them bloody. On the fourth day, God sent the sun, moon, and stars in the heavens, and the fourth bowl is poured out on the sun, and it goes into overdrive and scorches the earth beneath. On day six, God created Adam, and on the, and the sixth bowl is poured out, making a way for the kings of the earth to come and to fight against the three frog demons that come out of the mouth of the dragon. God is dismantling the world from top to bottom. He's shredding the world. He's undoing the work of creation. I don't believe that this is talking about the end of the physical universe. Revelation as a whole is talking about the end of the old creation, 
the end of the old world that preexisted the coming of the Messiah, that preexisted the coming of, coming of Jesus. More specifically, this is the old world that was centered in Jerusalem, around the temple of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was nestled within the Roman Empire. That world is coming apart. That world is coming under judgment. That's what we're seeing in Revelation as a whole, and we're seeing the climax of that in some ways here with the bowls. The bowls are poured out and are tearing that world apart. A world is coming to an end. The seventh bowl should correspond to the Sabbath day. The seventh bowl should bring rest. Does it? Does the seventh bowl bring some kind of sabbatical conclusion to the sequence of bowls? Well, it does, but only if we recognize that rest has more connotations in the Bible than simply taking a break from work. When God created the world and he rested, he was not only refreshed, but he was enthroned as the king of his creation. When the temple was built, God entered that uh, entered the, uh, the, holy, the most holy place and took his place over the wings of the cherubim. He took his throne and he was at rest in his house. Sabbath is not only a time of refreshment, it's a time of enthronement. When God is enthroned, when God passes judgments, and that's what's happening here in Revelation, at the end of Revelation 16. It's a Sabbath event in the sense that it has to do with the throne of God. It has to do with God assuming his throne and taking his rest over his creation. Well, the throne of God isn't mentioned in the seventh bowl section. So how do we know it's talking about the throne of God? Were the two clues. When the seventh bowl is poured out, there is the throne is mentioned as the voices. The voice is spoken from the throne. I was wrong. The, the throne is mentioned. A voice is spoken from the throne. But even more than that, when the bowl is poured out, John sees lightnings and he hears thunders and rumblings and sounds. Those are the phenomena of the throne of God. When John first ascends into heaven, he sees the throne and there are lightning flashes coming out of the throne and the throne is rumbling. It's in a cloud. It's in a storm cloud. God is the God of the storm. He's enthroned in the midst of the storm. He's enthroned in the midst of his glory cloud. And when John sees lightning and hears thunder, he knows that the throne of God is near. When John first sees that throne, he sees lightning, he hears the thunder, he does not experience an earthquake. There is an earlier time in Revelation when the throne of God appears, the Ark of the Covenant appears in heaven, and we're told that there are lightnings, thunders, sounds, and an earthquake. When the seventh bowl is poured out, God does that one better. This is not just lightning and thunder and an earthquake, but lightning, thunder, and an earthquake like no other. An earthquake that is unlike any earthquake that has ever happened in the history of man. An earthquake that splits the city of Babylon in pieces, that makes cities fall. An earthquake so severe that the islands run away and scurry into places of hiding when the earth shakes. What's happening? Why is the earthquake being added to the lightning, the thunder, and the sounds that associate with God's throne? It's because the throne of God, which John initially sees in heaven, is crashing down to earth. The throne of God, the kingdom of God, is no longer simply going to be 
a heavenly kingdom, but God's kingdom is going to be exist on earth as it is in heaven. John sees the beginning of that in chapter 11 when he sees an earthquake associated with a throne, but this is the climax of it. When the fourth, when the seventh bowl is poured out, then there is, there are lightning flashes, uh, uh, thunder, and an earthquake like no other. The throne of God has come to earth. Heaven and earth are united now by one ruler. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of the Lord and of his Christ. There's another clue that that's what's happening here in this passage. And that's the hailstorm. When John first sees the throne of God in heaven, he doesn't see a hailstorm. He sees the throne beside a sea like glass. But the sea of glass is intact. In chapter 11, when he sees the Ark of the Covenant up in heaven, he sees the lightning, he hears the thunder, he feels an earthquake, and a hailstorm starts. That sea of glass, that firmament that God set in place to separate heaven and earth, is beginning to break in pieces. It's beginning to shatter. The Bible a number of times compares the dome over the earth, the firmament dome that we look up and see, the blue sky, to an ice dome. I don't think the Bible is making any kind of scientific claim that we're living under a dome of frozen water. That's the picture, though, that we have in the Bible. And when you have a hailstorm, it means that little chips of that firmament are coming down. That happened in chapter 11 when John saw the Ark of the Covenant in the heavens. Now it's happening big time. This is not just a hailstorm like the earthquake is not just another earthquake. This is a hailstorm like no other hailstorm. With stones of hail that weigh a hundred pounds each, the firmament is shattering as the throne of God descends from heaven to earth. It's breaking through the dividing wall. It's breaking through the veil that separated God's throne in heaven from earth. Heaven and earth are being joined under one ruler on this great Sabbath day, this great day of atonement. When the seventh bowl is poured out, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Remember what I said a few minutes ago. We're not looking forward to this. This is not something that we hope to happen at some point in the future. We hope that it happens in its fullness. We do hope that ultimately all things on earth are done according to God's decree. Things are done on earth as in heaven. But heaven and earth are already joined. The throne of God has already crashed through the firmament and taken its place on the earth. Jesus Christ has authority not just in heaven. Jesus Christ has authority on the earth. And the throne of the Lord, the throne that shatters the firmament, the throne that breaks cities in pieces, that throne has been established in our world and Jesus is on it. Well, how does this happen? What makes this happen? What makes the firmament shatter? What makes the throne of God descend from its safe place in heaven down into the turmoil of earth and shake the earth? Our first instinct would say it must be Jesus. Something Jesus did. The blood of Jesus. That's what being poured out. The blood of Jesus shatters the veil, shatters the firmament, and brings the throne of God to earth. Well, certainly true, nothing happens in Revelation that isn't the work of Jesus in some way. But that's not what we're looking at here. 
We're not looking at how the blood of Jesus affects the world. To understand what's happening here, we have to go back a couple of chapters in Revelation to chapter 14. At the beginning of chapter 14, we see 144,000, those who were sealed earlier in the book. And they're standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb in their midst. And they're singing the songs of heaven. And they're called the first fruits. The 144,000 are marked and sealed to be living sacrifices and dying sacrifices. They are the last martyrs that are going to bring the completion of the number of martyrs. The number of martyrs that has to be filled before the Lord avenges the blood of those martyrs who have already been killed. The 144,000 are those who are marked for that task as priests of their own sacrifice to offer themselves and their own blood in sacrifice to the Lord. They're called the first fruits at the beginning of the chapter. And in the course of the chapter, chapter 14, we see a harvest scene. First, the grain is harvested and caught up safely into the Lord's, uh, into the Lord's barns. Then the grapes are harvested. It's a harvest of grain and grapes. It's a harvest of the first fruits. It's a harvest of the 144,000. You are what you eat. The 144,000 eats grapes in the form of wine, drinks, drinks grapes in the form of wine, eats bread, grain made into bread. They are a Eucharistic company, and so their uh, harvest is described as a harvest of grain and grapes. That harvest is not a judgment against the 144,000. This is not a destructive harvest. In our gospel reading, we heard about the harvest as God's gathering in of his own grain from his own field. That's what's happening here. On earth, if you saw this event on earth, what you would see is Christians being flayed alive, vinegar poured on them, salt poured in their wounds, and then tied to stakes and burned. If you were seeing this on earth, you would see Christians smeared with oil so they could serve as torches at a party uh, hosted by the Emperor Nero. If you saw this on earth, you would say, this is torture and martyrdom. But we see it from the perspective of heaven. What's unveiled is that this is actually a harvest. This is God gathering his people to himself. This is God gathering the last of the martyrs, the martyrs, the first fruits of his harvest, the harvest of the new covenant to himself. The 144,000 are grain and grapes. And then the grapes that are the 144,000 are put in the wine press. That too, that, that's not an image of judgment either. The wine press is turning the martyrs into wine, turning their blood into wine. Wine that brings joy, but wine that also is an agent of wrath against those who have persecuted them. Their blood is poured out like the blood of Abel that calls on the Lord for vengeance. That's what's in the bowls that the angels pour out in chapter 16. The wine wrath of God is executing God's judgment. But what's in the bowls is the blood of the martyrs. It is the work of Jesus. The blood of the martyrs doesn't do anything apart from Jesus. We saw that, see that at the beginning of Revelation. Many martyrs had died without ascending to heaven. Many martyrs had died without cracking the firmament and bringing the throne. The martyrs only do this because their blood is mingled with the blood of Jesus. But when their blood is mingled with the blood of Jesus, 
then their blood poured out on the world decreates the world, unravels the world. Their blood poured out on the air smashes the firmament and brings the throne of God to earth. Why is the kingdom, why do the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ? Because Jesus and his church shed holy blood so that God judges the earth and shakes the earth until those things that can be shaken down are shaken down. And the only things that remain are the things that are eternal, the things that cannot be shaken. What does this have to do with us? We admire the martyrs. We admire the courage of the martyrs. We know that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is what uh, waters the earth so that it produces fruit. That's a patristic and, and ancient saying about martyrdom, and Revelation supports that. The blood of the martyrs casts down old worlds and is the seed of a new world. What does that have to do with us in our comfortable little lives? We have not resisted to the shedding of blood, as Hebrew says. And it doesn't mean we should go out seeking it. We should try to find ways to shed our blood. The, the church has always cautioned zealots against seeking martyrdom, making a display of themselves to court opposition. But these days you don't have to. In the days of the Roman Empire, the Christians didn't have to do anything dramatic in order to attract the hostility of the Roman world. Every time they said, Jesus is Lord, the Romans heard, Caesar is not Lord. Rome existed, Rome prospered, so the Romans believed, because of a contract between the gods and the Romans. As long as the Romans honored the gods, offered sacrifices to the gods, as long as they pleased the gods, the gods would give Romans Victory, and they did, victory after victory. It worked, the Romans said. And then these Christians come along, and they're deviants. It's an infection in our world. These people don't play play by Roman rules. They don't keep the social contract, and the gods are going to become angry. The gods are going to abandon us. The gods are going to turn against us and fight against us, and we'll start losing battles. We'll start losing territory. The Christians were a threat to the whole Roman world. What did they have to do? Say Jesus is Lord and refuse to offer sacrifice to the emperor. All they had to do was keep silent when some Roman ruler told them, confess Caesar as Lord. That's all they had to do. You don't have to go courting martyrdom because our world, like the Roman world, is set up with, uh, set up in hostility to Christianity. Our legal system is set up with built-in hostility to Christianity. It has become so. It wasn't originally so. It has become so over the last several decades. More and more, we're told that we have to obey the rules of speech in public discourse. We can't show any kind of intolerance. Intolerance means condemning something as a sin, that the Bible labels a sin. We have to play by the rules of political speech in public, well, okay, we'll just stay out of public. Do you go to work? Do you have a place of business? More and more, that is part of the public world where the rules of anti-discrimination and tolerance, where the public world where Christian views and Christian 
uh, uh, Christian affirmations are considered bigotry, that public world is expanding into your work world. Legally, this has been established by American law. You can't express bigotry with certain circumscribed freedoms. You can't express bigotry in public places, and increasingly the entirety of our society and our economy is built on, uh, is conceived as a public place. You don't have to go searching for martyrdom. A martyr is a witness. A martyr, by its early original definition, is not necessarily somebody who dies for their witness, although they're willing to. They're willing to give up everything for the sake of witness, but a martyr essentially is simply a witness. And we're all called to martyrdom in that sense, martyrdom to bear witness to Jesus no matter what the cost. We don't have to go looking for it. You teach your children that the Bible is true. You teach your children the Neanderthal view that the world is maybe 6,000 years old. You are, the opinion of some, abusing your children. And your children need to be taken from you because you're abusing them. You have done anything but teach your children what the Bible teaches. And you fall afoul of the system. If you express your views, biblical views, on certain issues, particularly sexual issues in public, you're considered a bigot. If you consider, uh, if you express views against abortion, you're against women and against women's freedom. If you live by certain standards, Christian standards in your uh, work life, and take a stand at certain points against things that your work demands that you cannot do in good conscience. You could lose your job. You could lose future promotions. Martyrdom is the true resistance. You want to join the resistance. We hear a lot about the resistance today. You want to join the resistance, the true resistance, the resistance that really resists the very foundations of our ungodly society is the witness of martyrdom. What Revelation shows us is that witness, courageous witness, witness that is willing to risk everything, is what brings down worlds. We haven't resisted to the shedding of blood, but when the martyr's blood is poured out, the firmament shatters and God's throne comes to earth and God reigns on earth as he does in heaven. Every time we say we have to obey God rather than men, we're challenging the very foundations of our political order. Every time we resist by faithful witness and refuse to buckle under the pressure, we are showing the impotence of the gods of this world. Every time we bear witness, we put another crack in the firmament and the throne of God, the heavenly throne of God, with its lightning and thunder, comes closer to the earth. So it will shake the earth and shake Babylon to pieces. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the true and faithful witness, the true and faithful and the model martyr. We pray that you would teach us and equip us to follow his way, to bear faithful witness no matter what it might cost us. We pray that you would use our witness to shake down the world, to bring down principalities and powers in heavenly places, 
to overturn injustice and evil and to bring your throne into this world so that Jesus Christ might be exalted as King of all. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. As God's royal priesthood, let us stand together for prayer. Holy and almighty God, you made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. You are steadfast, keeping your faith forever. You execute justice for the oppressed. You set the prisoner free. You open the eyes of the blinds and lift us up. The Lord loves the righteous. You take pleasures in those who fear you. Yes, Lord, you sing over your people with exultation and joy and delight. We praise you, our great and holy and majestic God. We pray that you would purge from us every evil desire. Deliver us from every sinful habit. When confronted with former sins and tempted to do the same, cause our eyes to gaze upon the cross of Christ and our heart to find greater satisfaction and joy in our risen Lord. Help us flee from everything that dims the brightness of your grace in our lives. Fill us with your spirit. Conform us to look more like Jesus in every decision, every trial, every joy, every sorrow. Sanctify us for the glory of your holy name. We give you thanks today for the gift of our faith. We pray that you continue to mature and strengthen that faith, that we would indeed become more like Christ. We pray that you would be among us today, strengthening the weary, healing the sick, encouraging us all. Thank you for being a God who pursues his people and does not leave us, rather has sought after us. We rejoice that Jesus makes constant intercession on our behalf, and we pray that we would be a people that continually, continually give praise and thanks to you and to him. We confess that in our sinfulness we are weak and selfish, but we know that you have saved us by your grace, and in your strength we are freed. And we lift up our hearts to you, and our hands are outstretched. Thank you for meeting us here today in your house. We cannot count the many ways in which you bless us, and we are eternally grateful for the blessings of this table and of your word brought to us this morning. We praise you that you are present in this assembly. Help us to come away from this place today under the light of your countenance and the satisfaction of your perfect love for us. We remember our Birmingham, the city of Birmingham today, Lord. We pray for our mayors and other elected officials that they would indeed rule in a fear of you. We pray for the churches of our community that surround us, for Christ Church in Branchville, for St. Stephen's Episcopal and Cahaba Heights Baptist, for Mountain Brook Church, Cahaba Heights United Methodist Church, Cahaba Park Presbyterian, Cahaba Heights Church of Christ, Brookwood Baptist Church, St. Peter's Anglican, and the Roman Catholic and Orthodox congregations around us. We pray for our students in schools that they would learn with, with truth. You learn your truth. We pray for Heritage Academy and for the Classical Conversations group that meets here. We pray for all who are in prison that we would outreach to them, Lord, and, and help them to know the joy of salvation. We pray for our doctors in the hospitals and all other health care workers, for our nurses. Thank you for the work of Theopolis Institute in our city, Lord, and for the, for the leadership that they provide. We pray for wisdom for our candidates and our voters in the upcoming election. Lord, and among our church, we pray for our expectant mothers, for Mary Jo Mosley, for Ashley Douglas, for Bethany Winstead, and Abby Waddell. We pray for those who desire to get married. We pray for all among us who have unbelieving family or friends. We pray for all who are aging or caring of those who are aging. And, Lord, we do pray especially for all those who have suffered great loss of life and of property in the destruction of the recent hurricane. We pray that you would be with them and bring them your peace. And, Lord, now hear us pray as we sing the prayer that our Savior has taught us.